According to the church calendar, today is the fifth Sunday of Easter. We are still celebrating the resurrection of Christ, and we're continuing our brief survey of the book of Revelation. Jesus has established the kingdom of God and initiated a new creation, and so we're turning to the book of Revelation um, to explore what that really means. In our passage today, John is given a vision of the very end of everything. John is given a vision of the very end of everything, and he records that vision for the church. However, John's vision of the very end actually comes in the second-to-last chapter of Revelation. In fact, John will will be given yet another vision before this book comes to a close. As we've seen over the past few weeks, the book of Revelation is broken into four different visions. And each vision is marked by the phrase, in the Spirit. In chapter 1, John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. In chapter 4, John is taken in the Spirit to the throne room in heaven. In chapter 17, John is taken in the Spirit to a wilderness. And in chapter 21, verse 9, John is taken in the Spirit to a mountain. So today we are at the tail end of John's third vision, which began back in chapter 17. And John's fourth vision begins immediately following today's passage. And again, for for some reason, John's vision of the very end of the story does not come at the very end of the book. Now, quick reminder, why is John being given these visions in the first place? Well, we are told in the opening verse of Revelation. The purpose of John's letter is to share with the early church what must soon take place. The early church was facing political upheaval and persecution and martyrdom. And so Jesus gives John a series of visions. And these visions are intended to prepare the church to bear faithful witness. Jesus is equipping these early Christians with the perspective they need to bear faithful witness, even in the face of martyrdom. Jesus is revealing for them what all of the political upheaval and persecution and martyrdom actually look like from the perspective of heaven. Over the past few weeks, one major takeaway has been That heaven is not passively watching as chaos unfolds on the earth. In fact, heaven is revealed to be securely sovereign over the whole mess. John witnesses events taking place in heaven, and these events have earthly consequences. John is able to see into the future because heaven is the place where the future happens first. Heaven is the place from which the future arrives. We tend to think it's the other way around. We tend to think that heaven is the end of everything. We tend to think heaven is our ultimate destiny and destination. But actually, the the earth is the end of everything. The earth is our ultimate destiny and destination. The goal is not to escape earth and go to heaven. The goal is to heavenize the earth. And so we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Revelation chapter 21 teaches us that the ultimate end toward which history is moving is a fully heavenized earth, an earth where God dwells with man. 
an earth that receives the consummate city of God as it descends out of heaven. So, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, as is often the case in the New Testament, we are faced with a reality that is true of both the future and the present. Maybe you've heard of this phrase, already not yet, right? As Christians, we look forward to a future that is already breaking into the present. And the same is true of verse 1. On the one hand, we, we look around the world and we see weeping and warfare and wickedness, right? Distress and death and decay, and we say, I, I sure hope this is not the new earth. I sure hope this is not the final state of all things. And so, so we're obviously still waiting on something better. But we shouldn't be surprised to learn that there's a sense in which the new heaven and the new earth have already begun. Let's think about this in terms of what we've learned in the past three weeks. As the book of Revelation opens, there are no human beings in heaven. It's just God and a myriad of angels. There's no human worthy of ascending into heaven. There is no human who can take the throne or open the scroll. But then, Jesus is deemed worthy. Jesus ascends into heaven, and following after him, the saints are also permitted into heaven. In other words, heaven is made new because for the first time in history, it's occupied by human beings. And and a human king is on the throne in heaven. And what's happening on the earth in the meantime? Pentecost. The Spirit of God is being poured out upon the earth. The earth becomes the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. The heavenization of earth has begun. Heaven is earthified and the earth is heavenized. We have a new heaven and a new earth. Humans in heaven, God on earth. But again, we're still waiting. We're still looking forward to an even more glorious future. The future has begun to break in, but it hasn't fully arrived. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden, God's people have been searching for a new Adam who is worthy to restore humanity's access to the dwelling place of God. A new Adam who is worthy. But again, the goal is not for us to go to heaven. The goal is not for us to make our way to God. Because in the end, literally here, the end, God comes to us. As the holy city descends, so does God in all of his fullness. In the end, the dwelling place of God is with man. And this this word for dwell and dwelling place in verse 3 is the Greek word for tabernacle. 
Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them, and they will be his people. The tabernacle was the dwelling place of God on the earth. And the only other time we see this word used in the New Testament is in the Gospel of John. Same author. And if we had a few hours, I, I could show you how the book of Revelation actually maps on to the Gospel of John as, as a single interwoven literary work. I will leave you to Google that, though. Uh, the point is this. The opening chapters of the Gospel of John present Jesus as a bridegroom in whom God tabernacles. And the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, also written by John, present the church as a bride in whom God tabernacles. Back in John 17, uh, back in Revelation chapter 17, John sees a great harlot an immoral woman drunk with the blood of the martyrs. The harlot is the old Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of the old world, that old world that was judged and destroyed 40 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. But now John sees a bride, beautiful and faithful, the antithesis antithesis of a harlot. And the bride is, of course, the new Jerusalem. The Jerusalem of the new world that descends out of heaven. The new heavens and the new earth are thus presented as a marital union. Just as a bride is united to a bridegroom, so the church is united to Christ, and so heaven is united to earth. This is the marriage of heaven and earth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible that God has tabernacled with humanity. But this, this, this is the first time that God's tabernacling has been characterized by these things. No more tears. No mourning. No crying. No pain. There's no more death. All things are renewed. The thirsty drink from the water of life and the enemies of God are totally and forever vanquished. This is what the biblical narrative has been building towards. The end of all things has come, and every obstacle to abundant life and total joy has been eradicated. And the holy city descends from heaven as a place of complete, consummate flourishing. Shalom. Here's the thing. This 
this already not yet principle works both ways. The future is not limited to the future, and the present is not limited to the present. The future is breaking into the present, and the present is breaking into the future. In other words, the things we do today have implications for the holy city, which is to come. As we will see over the next two weeks, John is inviting the early church to begin building this new Jerusalem. We are still building it. And we do that in three primary ways. Through worship, through witness, and through work. Two weeks ago, we we touched on the power of worship. And last week, we talked about the power of witness. And so let's let's talk about the power of work. By work, I, I don't just mean having a job. I'm referring to the divine call to exercise dominion on the earth, which may involve having a job, but also involves, in the words of the prophet Jeremiah, building houses and living in them, planting gardens and eating their produce, marrying and having children, giving them away in marriage, multiplying and seeking the welfare of the city. It involves opening our homes to the needy. It involves pursuing justice for the poor and the fatherless. It involves speaking truth to power. It involves everything necessary to build a good and holy city. We already belong to this new Jerusalem, and it's, and it's our responsibility as present citizens of that future city to begin building now. It can be surprising to see the very end depicted as an urban environment. Perhaps some of us might prefer a return to the garden rather than the holy city, right? But the Bible does not invite us to long for a return to the garden per se. We're invited to long for paradise, but ultimately we will enjoy a distinctly urban paradise, a holy city in in perfect harmony with all of creation, a holy city with no tears, no pain, no crime, no poverty, no oppression, no hunger, no thirst, no death. It's a city of light and life and love and joy and abundance. And if we think about it, this, this urban trajectory actually affirms and endorses human vocation and the development of human culture. This urban trajectory affirms and endorses the work that we do. Because that future city is already breaking into the present, we have the privilege of partnering with God as heaven descends to the earth. As present citizens of that future city, our vocations today are eternally meaningful. When we work to build a better city, when we transform the raw material of creation into something more glorious, we are partnering with God in making all things new. And so the call today, the call today is to faithfully cultivate whatever domain God has given to you. To faithfully cultivate whatever domain God has given to you. 
Listen, we should all be serving the church, and we should all be giving generously to support the church. But the sum total of Christian living is not volunteering and tithing. We also need to be working hard, learning and growing, investing, purchasing and improving, starting businesses and schools and nonprofits, cultivating and beautifying, mowing our lawns, growing our gardens, nurturing our children in the faith feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, freeing the captive, opening our homes to the fatherless. We we are not waiting. We are not waiting to get tractor beamed up into heaven. That is not our hope. The earth is our final destiny and destination, and we should be living like that's true. We should be living the future into the present. On earth as it is in heaven, or in heaven as it one day will be on earth. Through worship, through witness, and through work. Now to close, I want to go back to that intriguing question from earlier. For some reason, John's vision of the very end of the story does not come at the very end of the book. We've seen the final state of all creation, so why does the book of Revelation keep going? As we will see next week, at the very beginning of John's fourth vision, this new Jerusalem is once again depicted as a bridal city descending from heaven to the earth. However, the description of the city is different. The new Jerusalem of this week is perfectly pristine. No tears, no death. The enemies of God have been vanquished. But the new Jerusalem of next week, while glorious and beautiful, continues to face external threats. It must guard itself from sin and lies and unclean things. So, same city, but with conflicting descriptions. So, how do we account For that difference, Lord willing, we will answer that question next week. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, in a world of upheaval, a world of pain and tears and chaos, you are securely sovereign. You see everything, you account for everything, and you will bring everything to a fitting conclusion. We long for that day. Jesus, you have restored us to the dwelling place of God. You have opened heaven to us. And we long to see you worshipped and obeyed on the earth as you are worshipped and obeyed in heaven. Holy Spirit, work in us. Work through us for the heavenization of this world and give each of us, each and every one of us, a vision for for how to be faithful within our respective domains. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.